For some, it was a shock to hear that Canada played host to the residential school system for more than a century. And the recent findings of hundreds of unmarked grave sites came as another shock as the reality of that school system came into focus. But having to reckon with the history of this country and the stories that have been told could be the next challenge on the path to reconciliation. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. We started our radar penetrating research on June the 2nd of 2021. As of yesterday, we have hit 751 unmarked graves. This is not a mass grave site. These are unmarked graves. Over the past years, the oral stories of our elders, of our survivors, and friends of our survivors have told the stories that knew these burials were here. Another announcement of an estimated 751 unmarked graves near the site of a former residential school east of Regina follows the discovery in Kamloops, B.C. of 215 unmarked graves of Indigenous children. The shock and mourning continues from coast to coast to coast. As a historian, though, of, of residential schooling, uh, with a family member uh, who attended uh, a residential school in British Columbia, uh, you know, this is not new information. Um, this information has been publicly available for, for quite a while. That's Dr. Sean Carlton. And I'm an assistant professor in the Departments of History and Indigenous Studies at the University of Manitoba. We reached out to Sean before the announcement of the unmarked graves at Kawasa's First Nation and wanted to figure out how Canada's 160-year residential school history fits into the truth and reconciliation process. The truth and reconciliation process in Canada got a start with the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996. 2006's Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement led to the forming of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2008. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission released their final report in 2015 that outlined that as many as 3,000, possibly as many as 6,000 or more children died uh, in these schools. I mean, all of this has been sort of there, but this reckoning um, over the past couple of weeks is sort of it's not surprising to me, um, but it, it, it's certainly been something interesting to, to watch how people respond to it and, and what we do from here. Now, you as a historian probably have a better perspective on this than I do, but it seems to me that the discoveries of these unmarked grave sites is a unique opportunity for people to directly address a very stark moment in history. Often interacting with history is done through plaques or statues, and we'll get to the statues later. But this is a very visceral interaction, and it seems rare to me. As a historian um, kind of connected to the work of, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, we often talk about, you know, we need truth before reconciliation. Right, um, and I think the un the unfortunate part is that for Canadians, the truth of acknowledging you know the genocidal residential schools is not something easy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the the discovery in, in, in Kamloops is sort of that irrefutable proof, mm -hmm. um, and and it has sort of you know triggered this this mass kind of outpouring of grief and 
uh, and, and reckoning. And I think um, that, that that is sort of what we're seeing is that there's no way to kind of wiggle out of it. You know, I think a lot of Canadians in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I, you know, watched a lot of the online comments and people sort of downplaying, uh, you know, the effects of uh, of these schools, which to be fair, um, had been going on for over a hundred years, right? Canadians yeah. have a long history of downplaying the negative effects of the residential school system. Um, you know, well, it was in existence, right? It started in 1883. It lasted until 1996, fairly recently, right? Um, and for the vast majority of that history, church and state officials mostly downplayed any negative, um, you know, wrongdoing uh, in, in those schools. Um, and it's only been in the last, you know, 25 years or so that there has been this reckoning, but it has been a reluctant reckoning. And I think the discovery at Kamloops sort of pushed things to the point where nobody could could deny what was going on in, in, the, in those schools anymore. Sean, there are calls from politicians and First Nations alike to use technology like ground-penetrating radar to search the grounds of former residential schools, and there is work happening already to do that. It seems to me that a lot more of this irrefutable truth, as you put it, is going to come to light. Absolutely. Um, I study specifically the, the history of residential schools in British Columbia, but I also am, uh, am aware and, and, and study the system as it you know, operated across the country. Uh, and, and it wouldn't surprise me that these mass graves, um, unmarked, you know, are at many of the former sites across the country. And, and many of the different nations uh, are, are doing this investigative work and trying to bring closure to their communities. Uh, and, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, right, specifically 71, uh, calls to action 71 to 76, laid out the process for this because, mm. you know, for, for communities, they, you know, they knew about this. Even the Tecumlis, the, the uh, Sequetmic Nation, you know, when they made the announcement of the 215, um, uh, the discovery of the 215 ch uh, children, you know, they talked about it as the community had talked about this for a long time. They had a sense that that this was going on. They just, you know, uh, they weren't wanting to, you know, dig people up and, and do some of that work. Uh, and I think uh, you're seeing a lot of comments from, from different First Nations saying, you know, we heard r rumors, we heard, you know, uh, children going missing and not being accounted for. And so I think now there's a lot of momentum behind uh, trying to act on those calls to action and actually bring closure to all of the communities uh, affected um, by the residential school system. That system had a number of uh, architects, a number of supporters, a number of, uh, of, of individuals who, uh, powerful individuals who put that in place in this country. If it's uh, Sir Hector Louis Langevin or uh, Bishop Vital Grandin or even Sir John A. Macdonald. Um, you told a colleague of mine to, that to call, uh, to say that Langevin was an architect of residential schools was incorrect and it would be more correct to call him, or more accurate to call him a staunch supporter of the residential school systems. Now, of course, across the country, we have schools named for these individuals. We have statues up for these individuals. Um, I, I mean, the names for people like Langevin, Grandin, uh, are, are being changed or, or actively being investigated to, to be changed. And even at, at Ryerson University in Toronto, the statue of Egerton Ryerton uh, was pulled down. 
wanted to start there and, and go in a few different directions. But first, are we looking at an erasure of history with these acts by taking the names of these of these men off of schools or institutions or pulling their their statues down? Yeah, lots lots to kind of pull out there. Um, let's maybe start with talking a little bit about the figures and then we can talk about how we mm -hmm. then remember those figures or commemorate them or not in, in terms of public spaces and statues and street names. Um, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot of people when they talk about the residential school system, you know, it's it, people will say things like the residential school system operated between 1883 and 1996, which is an interesting, you know, uh, grammatical phrase because it removes you know, it just seems like the system operates on its own, right? Um, when in reality, you know, it was directly managed by, you know, government officials and church officials for over 100 years. And the way that most people learn about residential schooling sort of removes that recognition of the people at, you know, at the heart of what was going on. And when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its report, it identified uh, a number of, of, of influential figures that helped you know, um, advocate and then initiate that particular system. Um, and so our language is, you know, we need to be really careful with our language. So someone like, um, you know, someone like Langevin, right, was in Calgary in, in uh, 2016, 2017, was being identified as the architect of the residential school system. Mm. Um, and, you know, at the time I was a professor in, in Calgary and, uh, and I was trying to correct the public record to say, well, Langevin was an important supporter of residential schools, right? But he wasn't the person, right? Uh, the person who kind of got all of this moving was the first prime minister of, of Canada, uh, Sir Johnny MacDonald. He was actually the superintendent general of Indian Affairs. He was the one that called a number of different figures, um, you know, to, to investigate uh, residential schools that were in operation in the United States. Right. He he sent uh, one of his influential supporters, Nicholas Flood Davin, uh, in 1879 down to the United States to to look into it and report back. Um, it was John A. Macdonald who then took that report, went to the House of Commons, brought a number of different people together uh, to to call for and initiate that system. One of which was uh, Sir Hector Louis Langevin, who supported Macdonald's comments in the House of Commons to get this up and going. And as the Minister of Public Works, you know, like uh, facilitated mm -hmm. the kind of use of funds to establish those first trial schools. Um, so, I mean, we just, we do need to be careful. You know, I, I think it would be fair to say that that Langevin was an architect, mm. right? But he wasn't the architect. If we're wanting to do that, you know, McDonald, you know, took it upon himself, you know, to, to choose that role, right? The, the prime minister gets to choose a portfolio, right? right. Justin Trudeau Jr. Uh, was elected. He chose the minister or the portfolio of youth, right? That was mm -hmm. his, his thing. Uh, when when um, McDonald was elected uh, for the second time, he directly chose the role of superintendent general of Indian affairs. So he could essentially manage the colonization of Western Canada, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was he who who kind of used his power and influence to kind of bring all of these different figures together um, to then advocate and then defend the system. And he, you know, he he called upon people like Justin uh, uh, Justin Vitell Grandin, right, Bishop Grandin, uh, as um, you know, to to um, it, 
uh, inform um, him and, and kind of get his opinion on, you know, the practicality of a school that would be essentially, and this is the hard part, the residential school system was contracted out to, to the churches, right? In the United mm -hmm. States, the government ran their boarding school system for Indigenous people. In Canada, they wanted to do it on the cheap and they right. contracted it out to the missionaries to manage, right? Funding came mostly from the federal government, but it was the, the missionaries on the ground who were actually managing these schools. So, you know, people like McDonald and Langevin, they listened to people like Grandin about the practicality of that system. So, you know, there's lots of different people uh, who either advocated for people like very early on, Egerton Ryerson, right? Advocated for industrial schools, for indigenous people in the 50s and in 1850s and 1860s. And then people like um, Bishop Grandin, right? Um, talked with and consulted with the federal government about the practicality of that system. But it was really people like John A. McDonald who took all of that information and said, now is the time that we launch uh, this official system. And he was supported by a number of different people like Langevin. So there's lots of different, um, there's lots of different people under the bracket of architects. Right. Um, you just need to remember that the system didn't create itself. You know, mm -hmm. people, people created it for very specific reasons, um, essentially to facilitate uh, and, and aid um, Canada's colonization, especially of, of, Western, of Western Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in terms of, you know, what we're now reckoning with them is um, a lot of these figures, especially in Western Canada, are uncritically celebrated in our public spaces. Nicholas Flood Davin, right, that person that John A. Macdonald asked to go to the United States and report on the practicality of the system and made the recommendations to contract it out and do it on the cheap. He's celebrated um, in, in Regina, school names named after him, street names named after him, John A. Macdonald we know, Ryerson we know, Bishop Grandin we know, all of these people mm -hmm. are are uncritically celebrated with statues and street names, et cetera, in our public spaces. The problem is, is that in the wake of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as Canadians are reckoning with the truth, a lot of people are saying, so, you know, these people are, are the architects of a genocidal school system and we are uncritically celebrating them with statues in our public squares. We're naming schools after people who advocated for a genocidal school system. You know, maybe we can we can choose um, you know different people uh, to kind of celebrate and have people look up to in our society, um, and that's creating a very tense debate because a lot of people think of statues and street names as history. If we take down a McDonald's statue, we're erasing history. We're never going to learn about him ever again. Mm. As a historian, you know, it's my job to kind of point out that what statues and street names are are not history; they are commemorations of the past. When a McDonald's statue comes down, right, or someone chooses to rename a school uh, after McDonald or Ryerson, I don't stop teaching about them in my history classes or writing about them in, you know, the historical work that I do and my colleagues do. What's changing is the uncritical celebration of those figures in public commemorations. That's what's, that's what's changing. We're just choosing not to uncritically celebrate, lionize, mythologize uh, these figures who have a much more complicated past and perhaps we don't want people looking up to and trying to replicate, right? Um, I think that that is a complicated process. Like we're reckoning with how Canada 
remembers the past and celebrates it in the present and mm -hmm. what role it plays in kind of encouraging people to look to the future and the kinds of values that we want to to imbue in new generations and you know that that is the kind of hard harder work um but is is absolutely an essential component of the kind of reckoning that we need with the truth if we want to move towards reconciliation and at the same time you know all of these men that you that, you, that we that we've spoken of all these men that we've mentioned they have left um, they, you know, a lot of the work that they've done has, has created this nation, right? Like Langevin uh, was a, was a father of confederation. We know John, uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, also the first prime minister and, and, and integral in that, in the confederation of Canada. Um, I mean, notwithstanding the, the colonial nature of the country, those are in and of themselves, not necessarily negative actions. How do you balance the, contributions that they've made to Canadian society, to Canada as a nation, while also recognizing their role in residential schools? Yeah, that's a really good question, Adam. And I mean, this is the work that we as historians try and do that is very difficult to do in commemoration. Again, the mm. difference between history and commemoration, right? right? Commemoration isn't about complexity and nuance and balance. It is really just sort of uncritically celebrating people. The work of history, um, is, you know, in the Canadian Historical Association, uh, which I am a member of, uh, you know, the work that we do isn't celebrating the past, it's trying to grapple with this. And I mean, you know, it, it, at least in the Canadian historical profession, you know, understanding Macdonald as a complicated figure who, you know, was a father of confederation, played an instrumental role in establishing the transcontinental railway. Um, you know, all of those things are absolutely true. But the flip side of that, right, is that to build the railway, um, you know, McDonald and his government also entered into a treaty making process to take land away from Indigenous people, to restrict them onto small reserves, to build the railway through the country, right, as part of that, you know, instituting things like uh, and expanding the Indian Act, uh, which put a lot of um, um, lack of freedom on Indigenous communities, institute, instituting the residential school system to help facilitate the building of that railway and Western colonization. It's like, it's, it, you know, McDonald is both a nation builder on the one hand, mm -hmm. but from another perspective, he's also a nation destroyer, right? right. He's destroying Indigenous nations to build Canada. That's mm -hmm. the, the complicated, new, nuanced understanding of Canadian nation building, right? Is that Canadian nation building uh, is good for Canadians, but it's, it is colonization for Indigenous people. Right. And, and that's the thing that we're trying to, to reckon with. And, and, you know, in my history classes, when I talk about Confederation, when we talk about and teach McDonald, right, we're not giving students the like, McDonald was a father of Confederation, he helped build the railway, the end. Right. right? <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's, and that's how most people learn about Canadian history, because I mean, in Alberta, in particular, there's this sort of emphasis that history education is only about patriotism and nationalism. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, you kind of can't talk about the full history um, mm -hmm. because that complicates the like patriotism, feel good story. Um, and I think, you know, for, for me, what I try and do in my classes is say, it's not about making you feel bad. That's not the job of the past. The past can teach you about, you know, the complexity and better prepare you 
to deal with issues in the present. So if you only learn a one-sided whitewashed, sugary coated version of Canadian history, mm -hmm. and then you see some of the things that we are seeing in our country in the, in the last couple of weeks from you know, anti-Asian racism to Islamophobia, to the discovery of 215 children in you know, unmarked mass graves, you don't have the history to understand like, oh, okay, Canada has a long history of racism. Um, and, you know, if we want to solve that issue, we can't deny it. We need to understand like, okay, we need to make different choices in the present if we want to have a better future. That's the role of history education at its best. The problem is, is that people who benefit from the way that society works currently that don't want any change would prefer to have people learn about the past in very kind of wonky ways that protects those inequalities. And you know that is unfortunate and leading to a lot of uh, a lot of conflict and and misunderstanding about you know these issues that seem like they're about the past. Like how can you change the past? Well, history is really about an interpretation of events, mm -hmm. and uh, for the most part, people learn uh, a very one-sided interpretation of that. And and now we're kind of reckoning with a more complicated understanding of history that hopefully can inspire and encourage people to play a more active role in trying to, to make the society they, they live in better and to pass on you know, um, a, a better future for, for our children and future generations. It seems to me that Canada isn't alone in having to do this sort of work, to have to, having to reckon with a, um, a, a shameful history, I guess. It depends on how you want to judge it, but that's maybe one characterization of it. Uh, a history of, um, of, of doing direct uh, damage to other uh, groups. Um, I'm, you know, first examples that come to mind in the terms of in the directly in the terms of truth and reconciliation is apartheid from South Africa, but then also, I mean, uh, it, Germany with, uh, you know, the history uh, that led up to uh, the Second World War. If, uh, to my mind, if though, if, if, and I mean, you know, you could go down the line, if it's the former Yugoslavia, if it's Rwanda, if it's, I mean, I think that's almost a part of, of, of Canadian, or not Canadian, but human nature can be to hurt other humans. And, you know, there's, uh, nations have these histories of these things, but it seems to me that, that if these other countries can do this work, if these other countries can, 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 can grapple with their histories and, and come to a, a bit of a modern understanding of that and, and be able to live their lives and not feel too um, like the like like the recognition of that history takes something away from them. Canada can do it too. Many people might think that this is like a Canadian specific issue or maybe a, you know if we're looking at the events of the past year, maybe Canada and the United States. but in reality this is sort of a global reckoning with you know, the last few few hundred years of history that has really been about, um, you know, from, from Columb Christopher Columbus onwards, sort of a global expansion of, 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 you know, Western European nations through the process of, of global colonization, right? Which created a variety of inequities uh, and, and, you know, things that are, are being confronted from enslavement to colonization, right? To mass genocides. Uh, as a result of power struggles over uh, resources uh, in, in former colonies around the world. Um, and so I think that perhaps that helps, you know, some, uh, some of your listeners to think it's not just a Canada specific thing. You know, even if you just look at the former British Empire, 
you know, uh, mm-hmm. South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, you know, there are, there's a lot of reckoning with how, you know, former colonies were created, um, particularly in, in the British Empire. But I mean, even, you know, if you look at the French Empire and Vietnam, you know, like a lot of these conflicts around the world have these kind of colonial vestiges. And, and Canada is no different, right? Um, mm-hmm. Although we don't learn about it in school uh, directly, you know, Canada was created as a part of the expansion of the British Empire in a very specific moment of time. And, mm-hmm. and like other former British colonies, you know, we're reckoning with that history and figuring out, okay, what do we then do moving forward? How do we, uh, how do we reckon with that history? How do we address its ongoing legacies? you know, to create, you know, better society, um, you know, for ourselves today and for future generations. And that is a good thing because I think denial keeps us, keeps us sick. It keeps Mm. those issues that are, that are actually bubbling under the surface always. Um, You know, it it, it keeps that going. It doesn't actually fix the problem. And, you know, a reckoning can seem scary, but it's also, you know, it's a challenge, but it's also an opportunity to do better. And I think that that's, uh, at least, you know, when I talk to my students, um, you know, I think they see it as an opportunity and they want to do differently and they don't want to be tethered to these kind of toxic nostalgias, um, mm. you know, that that keep us um, that keep us from addressing sort of the core problems that we have uh, in, in Canada. And that makes me hopeful. Anyone experiencing pain or distress as a result of their residential school experience can access this 24-hour toll-free and confidential National Indian Residential School Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. A quick update from our last episode with Gary Lacoste of the Canadian AIDS Society on the 40th anniversary of HIV AIDS being detected in the U.S. Gary said this. Because without the re- researches that, that have happened, we wouldn't be where we are, first of all, and we wouldn't have a COVID vaccine. Because mm-hmm. the COVID vaccine is in large part thanks to the research that was done After we spoke with Gary, Moderna, one of the companies supplying Canada and the world with a COVID-19 vaccine, announced plans to start phase one trials of an HIV vaccine using the same mRNA technology that went into their COVID vaccine. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon.